The book of Revelation is probably the most exciting and at the same time most misunderstood book in all of Scripture. The Come Follow Me study for 2023 is all about the New Testament. And the book of Revelation sums up the whole New Testament. In this seventh podcast in our series, we find out that the book of Revelation is a vision that was given to John the Revelator in a cave and how that cave can be like a temple. I'm Sam Bracken, your host. Our teacher is Dr. Breck England. He's about to publish his research in a new book, The Bright and Morning Star, Finding and Following Christ in the Book of Revelation. Breck, can you tell us how we got the book of Revelation? Yeah, tradition says that uh, John received the, quote, revelation of Jesus Christ in a cave on the island of Patmos. It's a Greek island, um, and he received it uh, near the end of the first century, which would have been around the year 90 A.D. Um, this cave, which is now called the Cave of the Apocalypse, hmm. is still there. Wow. And it's a, a, a natural grotto, about halfway up a mountain that overlooks the Aegean Sea. And in clear weather, John would have been able to see the coast of Asia Minor, yeah. which we now call Western Turkey. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, he had built up branches of the church. In, um, in those days, there were really busy Greco-Roman cities along that coast. And um, he had built up branches of the church in those cities. And apparently, the civil authorities in those cities didn't like him. <laughs> <laughs> so they banished him. <laughs> uh, yeah, they exiled him to this yeah. island for, as he said, preaching the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Uh, that's in chapter 1, verse 9. Uh, the prosperity of those cities depended on the pagan religious establishment. Okay, uh, In Ephesus, for example, um, Ephesus hosted a major pilgrimage every year to this huge temple of Artemis. Was it the Greek goddess of love? Okay. And this huge temple of Artemis was one of the seven wonders of the world. It mm. was enormous. Wow. And um, John's preaching was probably undermining the local economy. You see what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Wasn't a good business uh, model. <laughs> no. <laughs> not, not for the locals. Not for, yeah. yeah. <laughs> he, Com he was, competition was Obviously, tough. he was competing yeah, with yeah, exactly. the. Okay. And he worried about those branches in. Asia Minor that he had built up because they'd become full of arguments and false teachings. Mm. And the great apostasy of the church, as we know, was just around the corner. Mm. Um, prophets have always lived in caves. <laughs> you think about yeah, that's it. True. Prophets like John and, and Elijah and Ether in the Book of Mormon right. lived in mountain caves right. a lot of the time. Right where the Lord could reveal to them all things, even unto the end of the world, as Moses chapter 7 says. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of a place where the Lord could be private with the prophet and show him the whole plan of salvation. That happened many times. Yeah. Um, the legends of the Jews, the original temple was a cave. 
Hmm. Most people don't know that. Wow. Um, the tradition is that when Adam and Eve left Eden, they went to live in a cave. Hmm. And Adam, quote, this is a quotation from uh, a, an apocryphal book called the Book of Adam and Eve. He, quote, blessed the cave and consecrated it that it might be a house of prayer for himself and his sons. And he called it the cave of treasures. Wow. Close quote. Meaning the treasures of, of the word of God. Right, right. And he lived there in that cave until the time of Noah. And um, Cain and Abel made their offerings there. And Enoch officiated there in ordinances, according oh. to the apocryphal That's interesting. Uh, books. Um, so it was Adam's cave, the first temple. Likewise, so John received his revelation in a cave, a mountain cave, on, uh, on the island of Patmos. He was like Enoch or Ether, watching the apostasy happen in front of him. And John, well, like Ether, he watched the Jaredites, you know, destroy themselves. He must have wept the downfall of yeah. the saints in the branches he had worked so hard to build up. So in his compassion for John, the Lord transformed his little cave into a temple. It gave him a grand vision of hope. Wow, that's remarkable. Um, is that cave still there? Yes. They call it the Cave of the Apocalypse. Today, it is a Greek Orthodox chapel. Okay. Oh. Wow. Uh, they say it is, uh, quote, adorned with icons. I, I haven't seen it myself, but yeah. I've seen pictures of it. And it is adorned with icons and seven silver lamps. Um, the air is pungent with incense, close quote. At, at one end of the cave is what they call an iconostasis, uh, which is a sort of wall. And you find this wall in Orthodox churches everywhere. Uh, the iconostasis wall marks the boundary between the celestial world and the earth. Okay, uh, It's a barrier, uh, but it's also a point of entry because the priest can go in and out of it. Okay, Nobody else, only the priest goes in and out of mm -hmm. the uh, iconostasis. And behind the iconostasis, which is curtained off from the rest of the, of the church, is a chamber called, quote, get this, the Holy of Holies. Oh, wow. Okay? Yeah. Uh, which is accessible only to the priests. So when the, in a Greek Orthodox service, uh, the priest will go in and out of that area, and he will actually bless the sacrament inside the Holy of Holies and then bring it out right, for right. the people to... Have you seen this? I've seen that kind of service. Yeah, yeah I have. Yeah. Um, that's really amazing. So, so the... This cave is like a temple. Exactly. It's a pattern very familiar, should be very familiar to Latter-day Saints. And it was in this cave that Jesus appeared to give John the book of Revelation. Sure. Jesus always appears in a temple, right? Yeah. So wasn't he born in a cave? <laughs> you know, I think... <laughs> I think that's so. What, that's what tradition tells us. I, I mean, think so. Um, yeah. Now, I'm not an expert on that, but I believe that Bethlehem was riddled with caves, and right. they kept the animals in the caves, right. and it's very likely yeah. that he, I mean, it's, it's even probable yeah. 
um, the stable spoken of in uh, in the Gospels was in a cave. Right. Yeah. Right. So Revelation, as I said, <clears throat> always begin. It begins with a prologue, like all good Greek dramas did in those days. And that prologue always happens in the temple too. Okay, there is a prologue in the temple. If you've ever sat and listened, the voice comes to you, and it's a prologue. Yeah, and that voice uh, in in Revelation, the voice says, "Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written therein." Or more properly, it said. It's in Greek, it should say, he who reads aloud to the hearers. So um, not just reading silently, but blessed is he who reads to the hearers, to the audience, uh, who are to, quote, keep um, these things. Now, what does it mean to keep them? Well, obviously it means to keep your covenants, right? Mm -hmm. So the prologue says essentially what you hear in the temple. Um, here you are. You're going to receive covenants, and your task is to keep those covenants. Yeah. Okay. Wow. All right. All right. Okay. So the voice says that the hearer should keep the meaning of, quote, these things from public view. And that's in verse uh, 2, chapter 1. They're sacred and confidential. Mm -hmm. So this one reason why Revelation is so heavy with symbolism is a lot of it is supposed to, uh, it's the mysteries of godliness. You're, right. you're supposed to keep it sacred and confidential. Yeah, that okay. makes a lot of sense. So John is, quote, in the spirit on the Lord's day. It's a Sunday. And um, he's contemplating probably the scriptures or something. He says he's in the spirit. Mm -hmm. When he hears a voice like a trumpet. Mm. Uh, uh, and the voice says to him, quote, I am Alpha and Omega. The first and the last. And what thou seest, write in a book and send it unto the seven churches in Asia. Mm. Uh, that's the 11th verse. That's a pretty clear direction. <laughs> yes. Now, in, in ancient Greece, a trumpet was always used to call people together in an assembly. So to hear a trumpet was to say, okay, now pay attention. We're going to have, a, we're going to have a, an announcement. So John hears the voice, which is like a trumpet, and he turns and he sees the Lord, and he falls at the feet of the resurrected Lord, who comes through the veil to meet him. Wow. Okay? Does that make sense? It does. Right. It does. In other words, the iconostasis, the door, the priest, he comes out, out to meet him. Yeah, comes out of the veil. Okay? Yeah. Right? So what's the meaning of alpha and omega? Alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet. Okay. Alpha. And it signifies a beginning. Uh, the Greek letter alpha is related to a Hebrew letter, aleph. It's the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, two. And um, interestingly enough, and remember we talked about the astronomy mm -hmm. aspect of the book of Revelation. Mm -hmm. Alpha to the Greeks was also the name of the great star of all stars. Oh, wow. Which uh, today astronomers call this star Aldebaran. And, of course, it's still there. You can see right, it. Okay, right, it's right, called, right. The Greeks called it the Star of Stars. And it's the brightest star in the constellation Taurus. And every year, it rises 
or in those days, actually because of the precession, it rose then, at the vernal equinox at the, at the beginning of spring and the beginning of the religious year for the Hebrews. So it was the beginning star, okay? Mm -hmm. Alpha is the beginning star. It's the great star in the heavens that announced everything is going to be made new. Okay. Um, on the other hand, uh, the, the the letter omega. Uh, omega means the great O. Mega meaning great. And mm -hmm. Omega. Interestingly enough, the outside a little O <laughs> called <laughs> Omicron or Omicron. Uh -huh. Okay. But Omega is the great letter O, and it's the last letter mm. of the Greek alphabet, and it signifies, of course, an ending. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was uh, up in the sky, there's the constellation Libra, which uh, also called the scales. Mm -hmm. And it rose at the autumn equinox, exactly opposite the rising of Aldebaran, right? Oh, wow, yeah. And signifies the arrival of fall. Right, right. So um, there is a New Testament scholar we'll be referring to quite a bit. His name is Jacques Chevalier. He's a Canadian a scholar of the New Testament, very, very uh, well-respected, deeply researched scholar, not, not a Latter-day Saint. Mm -hmm. But if Latter-day Saints read the works of Jacques Chevalier, they'd be surprised at how, how Mormon he sounds. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, and Jacques Chevalier says um, when, when the Omega star rose... The, the Omega constellation, um, it, quote, heralded a season of darkness and the day of judgment. Wow. Um, so as the Alpha, Christ is the morning star, right? Promising eternal life, a renewal of life and resurrection. As Omega, Christ is the great judge the judgment comes. He stands at both the equinoxes, spring and fall. Mm -hmm. And what's cool about the equinoxes is that that's when the day and the night are absolutely in balance, in equal. Yeah. E the light and darkness are in balance, symbolizing uh, his roles as the author and the finisher of our faith. Wow, okay. that is really really interesting. Now, also, Alpha and Omega mark the two major feasts of the Jewish year. The Alpha star at the spring equinox signaled the beginning of Passover and represents the renewal of life and the mercy of God through the sacrifice of the lamb at Passover, right? Mm -hmm. uh, by contrast, Omega, the fall equinox, ushers in the Day of Atonement, which is the, sec the second great feast of the Jews. Uh, they call it Yom Kippur, yeah. right? the Day yeah. of Atonement, when the trumpets call all of Israel to face the justice of God. Therefore, in the calendar of the year and in the person of Jesus Christ, mercy and justice are in perfect so what did the Savior look like when he appeared to John in the cave? Well, John describes him. Right? Uh, if it's okay with you, I'd like you to read the description, which is uh, in Revelation 1, verses 12 through 16. Okay. I saw seven golden candlesticks, 
And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire, and his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sounds of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. Isn't that, isn't that a beautiful description? That is the Savior. really okay. powerful. Now, all of that is symbolic. Yeah, wow. I've never picked that up ever. So Christ was standing in the middle of seven candles, and he had stars in his hand and a sword coming out of his mouth. Yes, well, you can see that that's a highly symbolic picture, right? This is the setting for the first scene of our drama. We know where we are. We're in a temple, like the one in Jerusalem. We know that because <clears throat> there are seven golden lampstands inside the holy place in front of the veil in the temple at Jerusalem. Um, and this is uh, where the Savior enters, right? He enters through the veil. He explains that the seven lamps symbolize the seven churches of Asia, uh, which we will see in the seven window-like doors of the theater. The doors are called the theromata. Um, they're sort of like French doors. Mm -hmm. you, can, you can see a scene played out, okay, in, this, in the theromata, which were doors, <clears throat> kind of like window doors in the skene, the, uh, the backdrop of the, of the theater. Remember that the skene, from which we get the word scene, mm -hmm. S-C-E-N-E, -E, okay, mm -hmm. the word scene, is at the backdrop of the theater, all right? So can you picture that? Yeah, I can, okay. I can. Now, the seven golden candlesticks are, of course, the menorah. The menorah was a seven-branched oil lamp that lit the Jewish temple at night. You probably know what a menorah looks like. Yeah, I've seen it. Most them people do. It's, homes, a, yeah. it's a very well-known symbol of, of, of Judaism, of the mm -hmm. Jews. Uh, the number seven symbolized completeness to the Jews. And the seven lamps stood for the seven planets known at the time of John. Um, those planets were Mercury, Venus, uh, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, and the sun, and the moon. And the sun was the middle lamp, okay, mm. the big lamp. Got it, got it. Well, the menorah signifies, in other words, the heavens. Okay. Yeah. The menorah also signified... The, the seven eyes of God, oh. spoken of by the prophet Zechariah. Hmm. Zechariah spoke of the seven eyes of God that oh. uh, watch over the universe. Now, of course, again, that's symbolic, right? right, right, right. God doesn't really have seven eyes. That's, that would be literal, but yeah. this is metaphorical. Now, you have to kind of follow me here for a second. Okay, visualize okay. what I'm about. To, okay. It's kind of a mental picture I'm going to okay. draw for you. By connecting the seven moving points of light in the sky that we know as the planets, ancient astronomers created a wheel, okay? 
they saw a wheel in the sky. And that wheel had six spokes, right, from the seven planets. <clears throat> the six planets leading into the sun at the center, which was the seventh. They, they thought of the sun as a planet, too, because it moved. Mm -hmm. Okay. By the way, to the Greeks, the difference between a planet and a star was simple. Planets move. Stars don't. Right. They stay. Um, but planets, as a matter of fact, the Greek word plane meant um, to take a walk. Mm, okay. That's interesting. <laughs> right. So interesting. the planets were moving and the stars were not. So they thought of the sun as a planet, too, because it moves. All right. Mm hmm now, picture that, picture then a wheel with six points, and the sun in the middle is the seventh, it's the hub of the wheel. Mm -hmm. Now, think of the six spokes coming into the, to the hub, okay? Mm -hmm. um, uh, he, the Savior, stands at the hub of this wheel, mm -hmm. okay? Uh, because John says... Quote, he stands in the midst of the six lamps. You see what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, the six other lamps. He is the central lamp of the seven. And that's why John says he is like, quote, the sun shining in his strength. You see what okay. I mean? Yeah. yeah. So this is all a symbolic representation of the sky with the six planets and the Savior in the center representing the sun. So far, so good. Do, so can far, you see I'm, that I'm picture in your head? I can. I'm actually picturing okay. that. Yeah. Um, now, taken together, these symbols focus on Jesus Christ, who is the bright morning star and whose progress is one eternal round. Okay. Now, you see, remember that the sun goes around once a year. Yeah. Right? Right. And they knew that. And they, so it was all a very perfect symbol for the Savior. Mm -hmm. He's the he's the the sun, the shining star that goes around once a year, and his course is one eternal round because he just keeps going. Right. Okay. Right. He is the central point of the great wheel of heaven. Hmm. Why? Why uh, all the symbolism? Well, like, why? Why? Why not just be more plain? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Good question. I believe the Lord wants to show John what he himself can become. Hmm. An exalted man at the center of his own kingdom. Wow. Wow, that's profound. Think about that. Yeah, that's profound. Now, in that cave temple, Jesus is going to give John his initiatory ordinances. Mm. We'll see that later. Mm -hmm. And John will be initiated into the three magnificent roles that every exalted being enjoys. A king, a priest, and a celestial bridegroom. Those are his three roles. Wow. But they are also our three roles. Mm -hmm. The same promise applies to each child of God willing to follow the Savior, to be first a king or a queen, priest or priestess, and bride or bridegroom. Mm. Okay, you follow me so I'm far? I'm tracking with you, yeah. Christ will make us kings and priests 
unto God and his Father. That's what John says in the fifth and sixth verse of that mm -hmm. first chapter. Mm -hmm. This is extremely important. This is the goal. Mm -hmm. This is what the goal of all that John sees is that we should become kings and queens, priests and priestesses, brides and bridegrooms. Wow. And that stand at the center of our own kingdoms. Mm -hmm. In chapter 1, verse 8, the Lord calls himself the, quote, almighty. The Greek word is pantokrator, which means all-powerful. And like the sun in the sky, he is the source right, of all power. He is the source of warmth. He's the source of light in a very cold, dark universe. Mm -hmm. So that's why he is the central lamp of the menorah, uh, the one who rules the stars. As Doctrine and Covenants 88 says, he's the one who rules the stars. Hmm. What about the seven stars in his hand? What do they symbolize? Well, in his right hand, Christ holds the Pleiades. This is a constellation. A cluster of seven stars, which most of us have seen. If we've looked up at the sky, you can see it on a nice, dark, clear night. The Pleiades, the ancients thought, was a flock of heavenly birds. <laughs> okay, And it's interesting to me that Christ typically referred to himself as, quote, gathering the chicks around him like a hen. Mm -hmm. Okay, uh, The seven stars of the Pleiades rose in the spring. Interesting. The, the, the constellation Pleiades rises in the spring, mm -hmm. which reminded the ancient Christians of the resurrection of Christ. Right. Yeah. Interesting to me that, uh, just by the way, in the book of Job, uh, this is chapter 38, verse 31, Job says that the seven stars are a flock of birds. Oh, wow. Which is fun. Okay. Yeah. yeah, but but don't the seven stars represent the seven cities John was writing to? Yes, specifically, the seven stars represent the leaders of the seven churches Got it. in Asia Minor, which are in disarray, right? They're falling right. apart. They're falling to pieces, yeah. But remember that these symbols are polyvalent. Right. Remember our term polyvalent, yeah. which means what? means it can mean, one thing can mean different, many different things, right? Right, right. okay. They have more than one meaning. Right, right. Remember... Also, that the number seven signified what? Completeness. Yeah, completeness. Yeah, yeah, right. Or so. So the seven stars represented all the saints. Got it. Um, who Christ wants to gather, right? Like like a hen gathers his chicks in his right hand, and that's what that symbol. The seven stars in his right hand symbolize the saints that he holds. In his right hand, remember the symbolism of the right hand. Right. Yeah, um, that's and uh, he holds them precious in his hand. Yeah. So okay. I've always wondered why the number seven? Why not five or nine? <laughs> yeah. Why is everything seven in yeah. seven? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ancient Jewish writers believed that, uh, and they taught that the King of the Universe organized the world by sevens. Okay. Um, to signify his perfection. Why seven? I think it had to do with the seven planets, uh, with the sun at the center, because they signified the whole universe. Mm -hmm. Okay, so seven was such an important number to them. Okay, there's the six planets, 
and there's the sun in the center. So right. that's, I think that's probably, that may possibly be the reason seven was considered to be a symbol for completeness, the whole thing, the whole, yeah. the whole universe is mm-hmm. in the number seven. There was an early Christian writer named um, Tychonius um, who wrote a, a commentary on the book of Revelation. And Tychonius suggested very early um, uh, in history, he suggested that the seven branches spoken of in chapter one there represented the entire church or the entire spiritual church. Mm-hmm. Well, didn't the Lord create the world in seven days? Right. Exactly. I right. mean, seven right. is all. To, uh, seven represents the whole uh, a whole unit or a complete uh, act. Um, right. Yeah. And so, one of the things you'll see constantly throughout the Book of Revelation is the number seven. Right. Right. By the way, you will also see the number three and a half. Yeah, because which is half of seven, <laughs> and symbolized incompleteness. Oh, wow. Okay. Okay. We'll see that later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So in keeping with the rule of seven, as a quote, what Tychonius called it, a consecrated number, Mm -hmm. he said it represents the whole church. Mm -hmm. Of course, the Lord can't force us to gather together um, like the seven stars do. Mm -hmm. He says, quote, right, how often, how often would I have gathered you even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, but you would not. Right. Right. That's in Matthew 23, verse 37. Yeah. So so what about the sword coming out of the Savior's mouth? Like, yes. Okay. That's yes. a little trippy. That's, that's not that's going hor- to... That's horrifying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's not going to be literal. Right, 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 right. Okay. It's a symbol. And the nice thing is the Lord explains that symbol himself in modern Revelation. In the Doctrine and Covenants, he says, and he repeatedly says, Behold, I am God. Give heed unto my word, which is quick and powerful, uh, sharper than a two-edged sword, to the dividing asunder of both joint and marrow. Therefore, give heed unto my words. Mm. And that's actually in several places in the Doctrine and Covenants. It's in section 6, section 11, Section 12 and section 14. And what he means by that is that the word of God cuts two ways. Separating truth from error, right? Mm -hmm. Dividing asunder all the cunning and snares of the evil one. And throughout the book of Revelation, you're going to see the Lord dramatize the consequences of choosing his way or the devil's way. Mm -hmm. So it's a two-edged thing. Yeah. So it's funny. I was reading the Book of Mormon this morning where... Um, Nephi is um, talking to his brothers, and he tells them that the, the, the wicked take the truth to be hard. Yes, exactly. <laughs> right. It's going to be a cutting edge. It's cutting edge, man. Right. It's a hard mm-hmm. deal. Yeah, no, That's a knife. Okay, That's a knife, right? Okay. Throughout the book of Revelation, the Lord dramatizes the consequences of choosing his way over the devil's way. You said a few minutes ago that the Lord was going to make us kings and queens, priests and priestesses. What does that mean? Can you expand on that? That is the subject of our next podcast, um, episode number eight. So remember to join us next week. Yes. Thanks for, thanks for listening. Have a great day.